Hello, this is Holly Howe, and you are listening to The Probiotic Life. This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on the probiotic life. Welcome, welcome once again to The Probiotic Life. I am your host, Ben Klenner. Well, today on the show, we are going to have a fermentation celebration. That's right, all about fermentation on this podcast. Uh, We're going to be talking to Holly Howe. Um, She has a website, makesauerkraut.com, and book Mouthwatering Sauerkraut. And what I wanted to do today is take you step-by-step through how to make sauerkraut. It's not that hard once you have the hang of it, but it's really helpful to have some instructions just to get you through, especially if you haven't made it before. Um, And if you have made it before, you probably will find some other fantastic tips. But I want to make this more of a celebration today, so we're going to listen to a song first. Charlie McGee and his band Formidable Vegetable have been ringing in my ears the last couple of months. Um, I've been really grooving. They've got some funky, groovy tracks. Um, and he's sort of a rock star in the permaculture world because he's written uh, 12 different songs about the 12 principles of permaculture. So he's got some great messages, some funky tunes. And, um, you know... Music is really good therapy in this t- in these times, these, these crazy times that we're in. Um, it's also a good medium to transfer knowledge. And that's what he does so simply in these songs. Uh, the one we're going to listen to today is all about kimchi. And um, yeah, I love what Charlie's doing. Check out his TED Talk. I've got a link to that. Enjoy this uh, funky song in which you will learn to make kimchi. And then we're going to go straight into the interview with Holly Howe. So enjoy this funky song called Kimchi, and we'll see you on the other side. Give it 
On this episode of The Probiotic Life, we are talking to Holly Howe, and she is a bit of a fermentation expert. She has written a book called Mouthwatering Sauerkraut. It's fermentation made easy, um, and it's mastering the ancient art of preservation, grow your own probiotics, and supercharge your gut health. So welcome to the show, Holly. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And so uh, we would love to hear about your book, but on The Probiotic Life, we always like to share a bit of your story. So we'd love to hear a little bit about how you came to write the book, uh, but also maybe um, uh, where where you're from, where you're living now, and uh, yeah, just a little bit of, uh, in uh, about yourself. All right. Um, I grew up in California and uh, ended up moving up here about 12 years ago and looking for being a little bit closer to nature and uh, loved what we found up here on Vancouver Island, which is in Canada. And we're in a little community, the Cowichan Valley, which is the, kind of the warmest spot in all of Canada and a great place for getting fresh picked produce and lots of uh, wineries and uh, meaderies and a lot of foodies that live here. And um, moved up here and uh, trying to think. <laughs> no, that's okay. Uh, well, okay. you know what? Actually, the uh, Vancouver Island, if you haven't visited it before, it's a wonderful place, probably one of my m- most favorite places in the world, Vancouver Island. Um, so yes, it's a, it's a beautiful place to be uh, in nature and uh, with food. Um, so share with us a little bit about how you actually got into fermentation. Well, about um, I've always been interested in good healthy foods and trying to figure out how to live a long and healthy life and uh, tried various diets over the years, probably starting in my late 20s, all the way from like a Pritikin low-fat diet to pretty much what we practice now, which is the Nourishing Traditions diet. And a friend had given me the book as a Christmas present about 15 years ago, and I flipped through it and was just overwhelmed by all the preparation and all the soaking and the fermenting that I actually threw into a box to uh, give away, and it sat there for a year or so, <clears throat> and ended up pulling it back out. Had heard a lecture about um, Weston A. Price, who was a dentist back in the 30s, who went looking for healthy groups of people that had healthy teeth and looked at what they ate and how they prepared their foods, and found 14 groups that had perfect health, and he looked at what foods they ate and how they were prepared. And one of the foods that ran through all the diets were fermented foods, not necessarily just sauerkraut, but a variety of fermented foods, whether it was kimchi or the sauerkraut or fermented grains, etc. And I thought I would try it and bought some off the shelf. And it was pretty much a medicine for me at that time, but I knew uh, it was part of a healthy diet, so I kept eating it. And so so you actually felt something different you felt if you said it's a medicine you actually felt like there was something changing in you or you felt better after it right and you know you had better digestion and a little bit more energy um so yeah that kept me going with it but eventually with a family of four it just got rather expensive to be buying that so i tried to make my own i see and so that's when you uh embarked on your journey of fermenting was it sauerkraut at first the the first thing I ever fermented was sauerkraut, and I followed the uh, recipe that Sally Fallon put together in Nourishing Traditions, and uh, she uses whey as part of the, to inoculate, to make sure there's enough bacteria in there. And uh, it didn't all turn out that grand, but I kept plugging away at it and learned a lot along the way. But yes, that was the first thing I fermented. And uh, the first way I flavored the sauerkraut was with dill. <coughs> And that was the beginning of all the different mouth-watering flavors I soon came up with. But we liked it. And each full moon, I would go to the uh, grocery store and buy enough heads of cabbage to fit in a, it was a harsh water-sealed crock I had at the time, and would make a batch that would last the month and then uh, get another batch going. Mm, Even when you're talking about it now, I'm starting to, my mouth is watering because, uh, (laughs) uh, well, I actually am... My dad was born in Germany, so I sort of had that as part of the tradition of um, rotkohl, which is red cabbage, 
And so I can just I can think of that right now when you're when you're talking about it. Right. Well, you know, it's funny. I did live in Germany for a while in the late '80s. I I was a teacher in my previous life and uh, had traveled a lot as a family and was in, you know wanted to see the world. So I ended up working at a military base in Germany. And I do remember all the. Uh, pickled vegetables. I'm not sure if they were really fermented or not, or whether by that time they were vinegar pickled. But I do remember having those on every plate. It seemed at any meal I had at a restaurant were these pickled vegetables. But I don't remember having sauerkraut back then. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And so let, let's just talk about that. There's a difference between vinegar pickled, right? And fermented. Right. Yes, so naturally fermented is taking advantage of the bacteria that live on the fruits and vegetables to ferment them. You don't have to really add anything else except uh, salt. And nowadays, to have something shelf-stable and to have a consistent product, the modern food processing has taken away these fermented foods that gave us all sorts of beneficial bacteria and have replaced them with a heat process cook product that um, uses vinegar to give it the tang, whereas with the naturally fermented, the bacteria create the lactic acid that gives it the vinegar-like tang. So it's, it's sad to see as we uh, start processing our foods, here this food that kept all these cultures healthy with the bacteria in it has been replaced by vinegar-pickled products. So like at the pickles you buy at the store, anything you end up buying that's sitting on the store shelf would have been vinegar pickled, whereas the naturally fermented sauerkrauts will be kept in the refrigerator because they're still alive and still fermenting, though at a very slow rate. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, when you say that, the first thing that comes into my head is I have this narrative that is forming about, you know, the uh, um, like a commentary of um, civilization and culture and how we've moved away from culture in terms of bacterial culture and into uh, mass production, which is not beneficial for us at all. No, but it's so great to see all these uh, artisanal producers bringing back these foods. And, uh, you know, they are so flavorful and they could change a meal dramatically just with the flavor that uh, it's great that there's a resurgence in people wanting to know about fermentation who did not grow up watching their parents fill up a crock with cabbage and keep it down in the basement for sauerkraut throughout the winter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when did you actually start, was there any um, moments that defined your journey of like, wow, I want to make sauerkraut, not just for my family, but but share it? You know, it's a gradual process because when I first started making it, it was just me. There weren't a lot of people around who were fermenting. I learned from, you know, back there in the early 2001, 2002, I think was when my first batch was. You know, we didn't have the internet access that we have today. There weren't the YouTube videos. Wild Fermentation had come out, a book by Sandor Katz, and then the book uh, Nourishing Traditions. So there wasn't all that extra information that we have at our fingertips today. But the um, about five years into the process, people started asking me to help them make sauerkraut. So I'd have some friends over, we'd have a sauerkraut making party. And, you know, gradually that grew to the point where I started giving workshops and uh, hooking up with farmers and doing little uh, workshops at their farm when people would come to pick up their vegetables. And that somewhat was the start of uh, flavoring my sauerkrauts with something other than dill. Mm, mm-hmm. Which is, is uh, a fantastic flavoring, no doubt. No, it works great, but there's you can pretty much put anything you want into a batch of sauerkraut. And once I realized that, it just the whole world opened up. And at the one farm where I gave the demo, the she said, "What do we have to ferment with?" And all they had was uh, some carrots and garlic available at that time. So we put those together, and it was delicious. And that became kind of my signature flavor. It's the flavor I use to uh, teach people how to make sauerkraut. And the carrots in there kind of give a little bit of, I want to say sweetness, but take off the kind of strong flavor of the cabbage alone. And it's very um, easy for people to get used to the new flavor if they haven't had sauerkraut before. Like, I had never had sauerkraut growing up. So Mm -hmm. I call it my kid-friendly sauerkraut, and it's a, a great way to introduce people to the flavor that they're not used to mm-hmm. oh i would love to eat some sauerkraut right now <laughs> <laughs> you uh, don't have any fermenting well i i actually do have some in the in the uh 
in the fridge that I've uh, just, you know, took out of fermenting. But um, I still, you know, I'm not, I'm not actually that good. I, you know, do this probiotic life podcast and I love doing kombucha and a lot of uh, liquid ferments, but my sauerkraut is still, maybe you can help me with that. We'll get, we'll get into that a little bit later on is the details of that. Cause I usually make mine a little bit too salty. Okay. Um, so let, let's talk, we'll, we'll talk about that later on, but, but um, it, it, just hear a bit more about your journey. Was there any sort of um, mindsets that you learned or anything that uh, helps you develop what you're doing today? Well, part of it, I think, is just my appreciation for good food. Um, growing up, we had uh, many meals where everything came out of the garden. My mom canned. We Throughout the uh, winter, we ate jars and jars of canned fruits and you know tomatoes that she had canned, etc. And then traveling as a child and being able to go to different countries and experience different foods kind of opened my world to more than what you just find in the American uh, supermarket. You know, I remember even like traveling through Russia. I think that's where I tried my first fermented garlic. Um, this was back in the late 80s when I lived in Germany and would always find that on the top of my list was to go visit the local markets. And this was a huge indoor market somewhere outside of, I want to say Moscow. And uh, you open up the doors and all you could smell was garlic. Everybody had jars and jars of fermented garlic. Mm. And uh, so that was probably my first taste. And uh, just kind of being tied into the culture and the rhythms of the year. Um, like in Germany, you knew when it was mushroom season because every restaurant in the uh, village had some type of mushroom dish on their uh, menu. So mm. it was just really neat to be kind of tied into the foods and to the cycles of nature and realize that, you know, the foods you have, you get to cherish them for that when they're in season and then welcome them back again uh, when they come back into season. Mm -hmm. I love that idea, you know, just to be a little bit more connected to the land by being connected to what, uh, what's growing at the moment. Right. And that's really coming, you know, just the last 10 years that we've lived here, all of a sudden, I did start making sauerkraut seasonally, whereas before I made it year-round. But luckily, someone here was growing great cabbage, and I would only buy it in the fall. There's a mm. you know, winter cabbage and a summer cabbage, and the winter cabbage makes the best sauerkraut. It's a thicker leaf, and it's a tighter spiral, and it's just designed better for sauerkraut. And um, so I would wait till the first frost that would help sweeten up the cabbage, and that's when they would pick the cabbage. That's when I'd make the sauerkraut. And even now I'm starting to, um, once I realized you can ferment more than just cabbage, you can ferment just about any vegetable out there. Um, now I, I go to the farmer's market every weekend, and it inspires what I'm going to ferment next. So now I'm kind of fermenting seasonally, much like my mom canned seasonally with what produce was available. Mm-hmm. And and I like the idea too that you're actually, um, well, I guess unless you're using whey, if you just use the microbes that are on the the leaf material, that you're actually capturing a bit of a time slot of those microbes as well. Yeah, it is pretty fascinating, and you're also capturing the microbes that are in the air and on your hands, and the batch of sauerkraut that you make in your kitchen you can take the exact same ingredients and bring them into your friend's kitchen and make a batch of sauerkraut and it can turn out different because you have a whole different microbial you know action going on there mm -hmm. that's very interesting that i know that's the same with kombucha as well um you know you ferment it in a certain place and it starts to pick up the microbes that are in that area exactly actually that reminds me um before we move on of the first time i ever saw kombucha was in victoria on vancouver Island, <laughs> uh, probably about let's have a think 2006 or 2007 right and, and i was like what is this mushroom tea like what is this and ever since then now it's now it's you know big but again i think um vancouver Island is a place to be for fermentation yeah exactly my um 
if you do kombucha, any new people out there, many people make the mistake of letting their family see that mushroom growing onto it. And my son saw that, and he's been turned off to kombucha ever since. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I had my first kombucha in Russia when I was traveling. We went with the tour group, but I would never stick with the tour group. I wanted to kind of see the local flavor. Mm. And with a friend and I, we traveled down these back alleys, and some little old lady invited us into her home and offered us this tea. And uh, I'm sure it was kombucha, because I know the Russians are known for their kombucha, and that's mm. one reason why they can get away with drinking all the hard liquor, is that the kombucha can help them with uh, detoxifying and uh, help them over their hangover. So right. I think that was my first kombucha. Oh, wow. There you go. That's probably more from the uh, original source too, isn't it? Probably, but who knows? Who knows? So let, let's talk a little bit about um, what you're doing um, now or like how did you get from um, starting to ferment that and doing the workshops to ro- actually writing the book and bring us up to date to what are you doing now um, with your book and whatever else you're doing? Well, I was doing the workshops, probably started those about 2000 and. Oh, eight? No, what, 2010. And then um, soon I was getting into putting together a website, looking for a way to bring in passive income and also to uh, put all what that I was learning to a place where other people could access it. So the website came live about 2014. And then about two years later, I started, you know, along the way, I was developing a lot of recipes and then decided that I might as well mix, you know, turn this into a book that people could purchase and came up with kind of an earlier version of the mouth-watering sauerkraut, which was just a set of the recipes and had that available for my readers on the blog for about two or three years and then developed it further into the book we have today. So... I was looking for a way to develop a side business and uh, taking where I was spending all my time, which was in the kitchen, and making the sauerkraut, and that seemed to be what people were asking me about. And so I turned that into the website and even called the website uh, Make Sauerkraut. So it's all a very niche topic, but... I'm lucky that fermentation has continued to grow and there's so much information out there. It's just exploding about gut health and the connection between your gut health your and your own health. So um, I have not run out of topics to write on. <laughs> there you go. Well, um, yes, we'll uh, definitely put a link to that, but your website is makesauerkraut.com. And yes. it's uh, uh, got lots of information on there. And it's got a link to how you can um, purchase your book as well. So, which I've been enjoying looking through on the PDF, which is full of uh, beautiful photos and really um, it just lays it out so well. I love the way that you've laid out um, everything in your book. Uh, a lot of information there, but step by step so you don't get overwhelmed. Right, and that's taken time to develop, and that's where I have to really thank my readers because um, I answer each and every email that people send my way. So it's really a way for me to learn, and I really love that about uh, readers who have contacted me because they sometimes feel their questions are a little you know, too simple, but uh, it helps you keep things in perspective and realize, though I've been making sauerkraut for over 15 years, these people new to it still needed to be broken down to the simple, understandable steps. So it's mm, been a fun mm-hmm. process. I think um, I've heard this before and I know it's true for myself mm-hmm. is the best way to learn something is to teach it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I do have a, a teaching background. That was my first profession out there. I taught for seven, eight years and then got into a, a master's degree in instructional technology, whatever that is. But uh, so it all kind of coalesced together and has been nice to see it all fall into place. Wow. Okay. So so these days you're just working, you're doing more online stuff? Were you still doing workshops? I took a break on the workshops for a couple of years just so I could get the book done. And uh, now that the book is done, I probably by next fall, I'll go back to doing workshops. I only do them in the fall when I can get the local cabbage because I like people to uh, connect with the local farmers. And uh, so, yeah, I'll be back into doing them in the fall. But uh, so right now it's running the website and um, developing content 
content for that, deciding mm-hmm. what book I'm going to write next, and then an online course eventually. Oh, interesting. Okay. So you're really uh, moving all of your stuff online. Yes. Fantastic. That is definitely the way to to reach the the most people. And um, like you said, you know, pe- people ask um, what you might consider is a basic question, but sometimes you forget that you've learned so much that there's people that just need to know the basics of it. Exactly. And it's very hard. Um, you know, we did not grow up leaving food to sit on our countertop for weeks on end. And there is so much fear of bacteria out there. Some of the most common questions I get, you know, is this safe to eat? Am I, is it going to poison me? I'm so afraid to take a bite of it. And uh, it's unfortunate we have that fear out there. But uh, I had it the first time I made sour cream because I took a to make sour cream similar to yogurt, but you just mix in a little culture from a previous batch of sour cream into your cream mm. and leave it sit in a warm area overnight. And I did that and it thickened and it looked fine, but I couldn't bring myself to eat it. It got tossed. So I can totally relate to what mm. people mm. are saying, but, uh, you know, we didn't grow up seeing these processes go on and we've been told to sanitize everything and use bleach and, so it's hard to uh, for people to trust in the bacteria, but I always say it's safer to eat that sauerkraut than it is that salad of yours because any E. coli or salmonella or whatnot that would be have been on those that cabbage has been killed off in the fermentation process, but not your salad. That E. coli is still there if it so happened to get you know splattered onto your lettuce leaves. So. Uh, Mm-hmm. And also, if you do um, buy stuff that's imported, you know they have to. Uh, well, at least in in Australia, and especially in Western Australia, they fumigate everything. Oh so, goodness. so you've basically got poisons on the outside of your whatever um, produce that you have, and then you're eating that. Yeah, no fun. Yeah. So, uh, actually, do you notice a difference? Have you have you noticed a difference with the um, your local um, seasonal cabbage as opposed to stuff that you've bought that's obviously not in season or whatever? Oh, a, a huge difference, and I think that's. Um, I don't want to discourage people from fermenting year round, and you know when they learn about it, they learn about it, and they're ready to dive in and do it. But I think sometimes they're working with produce that has been sitting around too long and it's much more difficult to get the bacteria to work on it. You know, the longer you leave something that has been picked, it's starting to decay the moment from it that it's been picked. And so there's this kind of battle going on by the bacteria that are going to putrefy that vegetable and then the bacteria that would turn it into something delicious through a fermentation process and so it's decaying from the minutes it's picked so you're having to take something that's already on its way out and trying to revive it again so uh yeah i've noticed a huge difference just so much fresher and very little or very seldom do you get the mold and just the flavors are so much better so um I think it makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. I've definitely noticed that too. Whenever I um, do buy something like biodynamic produce, um, obviously there's a lot more flavor in there, but it tends to keep better. And um, from knowing a little bit about soil health and soil nutrition, um, you've got all those beneficial microbes covering the outside. So it actually stops um, sort of putrefying microbes working on it straight away i was going to say with your soil knowledge you'll you know it goes back to how important just the soil is that that vegetable was grown in Mm -hmm. and why it is important to find farmers that really do take care of their soil that's where it starts so uh yeah it it does help to uh, start connecting with your farmers and get to know who grows your food and how they care for the soil because that's going to make a difference on the, what they are selling you, how, mm. how quality of that produce. Mm-hmm. For sure. Soil health equals plant health equals human health. Exactly. You got it. So, yeah. so what are some of the things that you're working on in present? Like um, any, any uh, different fermentations that you're doing or anything else that you're working on? 
Um, I am uh, started writing a few um, recipes for the fermentation magazine, and it got me kind of going out and trying new things. And so, uh, what I'm trying to work on right now and create is what I'm calling salad toppers or salad in a jar. And I like to make my meal preparation easy. And especially during lunch in the middle of the day, it's hard for me to stop and put together a whole meal. Mm. So, I've started coming up with combinations of vegetables to put into a jar to ferment that. And then when it's time to make my lunch, I pull out some lettuce leaves and throw my salad in a jar, fermented vegetables on top, add a few nuts and cheese, and I've got this delicious meal. So like the last one I did, I put like celery, red onions, um, fennel, um, uh, jalapeno pepper, and corn. And... um, few other seasonings in there. And that was all dictated by what I found fresh at the farmer's market that week. So there was red onions there. So that got put into it along with the uh, fresh fennel. And it was the most delicious salad. And I was so sad to see the bottom of the jar because it was good. (laughs) So I'm trying trying to come up with a whole repertoire of kind of salad in a jar that you could reach for just like you do a jar of sauerkraut could reach forward to uh, throw together a, a delicious salad. Mm-hmm. And that's a good idea. And, th- and that's what I like about fermentation. It's so versatile. You can use it in so many different ways. Um, you know, one thing that I, I've been doing recently is uh, making kombucha, um, putting f- whole fruit in there. So we're just extracting a bit of the flavor, but then getting that whole fruit and either eating it like that, some of it is nice, some of it's a bit tart, but or or dehydrating that fruit that's been fermented oh. in kombucha. And my kids love it. They're like, in fact, even my daughter, she'll just eat straight dehydrated scoby. But but the the fruit that's been fermented in there um, is you know something that's a little bit different, but it's it's actually really good, really really fun to do. Yeah, that sounds great. And that's kind of part of that whole movement of um, trying to reduce our food waste out there. Mm, mm-hmm. Tonight with dinner, we had um, I sauteed some spinach and then added in fermented garlic paste. So that's another great way to flavor your meals. Uh, I pureed the garlic with some salt and ferment that. And then again, that's like a jar at the ready in my refrigerator. And uh, take a little dollop of that and mix it in with your sauteed greens. And boy, does that taste delicious. Mm. Yeah, there's no mm-hmm. there's no end to it. That's, uh, yeah, that's really good. So Holly, you've written a whole book about um, making sauerkraut. Can you take us through just the simple step-by-step process? Uh, what do you need? What is your space and when you set it up, look like so you can make sauerkraut really easily. Okay, I'd be happy to. Um, it's actually a fairly simple process. The idea, and most people will be fermenting in their kitchen. You'll end up with a packed jar of cabbage that will transform into a tangy sauerkraut um, by just leaving the jar sit on your countertop. And um, the main ingredients you're going to need is a quart or liter size wide mouth mason jar. Um, most people just repurpose a canning jar, or if you have another jar about that same size, that works. My recipes are all set up for the quantities to fit into a jar, and it's just a nice way to learn the process. And then people can move on to fermenting in a larger ceramic crock if they find they like that. Mm-hmm. So the key ingredient that I find to help people succeed and not having to guess along the way is to use a scale, just like bakers do for making bread. When we have a scale, we can put the right amount of ingredients into our bowl and we can add the right amount of salt. So um, even a cheap digital scale for $20 from a big box store will work, but you just want to be able to weigh the vegetables and cabbage that you put into the jar, and then you'll know how much salt to add to that amount. Right, so step, okay. Yeah. So step one would be to gather your supplies, which would be a nice uh, chopping knife of some sort, your cabbage. And I like to teach people the recipe I use is what I call sweet garlic, and it's um, using carrots and garlic mixed in with the cabbage. I find people new to eating sauerkraut, find the flavors a little bit more palatable if it's a new flavor for them with the sweetness of the carrots and the kind of tang of the garlic kind of adds a nice set of flavors there. Mm -hmm. 
So the important part is to make sure you know the weight of your bull, because we'll, we're not going to weigh the bull. So they call it a tear button, but we just want to note the weight of our bull. And then we're going to add um, some grated carrots and chopped garlic to the bowl. And I like to put in what I call my flavoring ingredients first. If you'll look on my website or notice that I really do not make plain sauerkraut. In fact, the first time I did was actually for this book to uh, make sure I had a nice plain sauerkraut recipe in the book. But um, So we'll put in the flavoring ingredients first, and then we add enough sliced cabbage to that bowl to hit 800 grams, which is the amount that fix, will fit into your jar when all is said and done. Right. So you're actually catering to the size of the jar. Exactly. And then once you understand that process, you can cater to a, the recipe to a larger jar, or then you can uh, double the batch, whatever. But once you understand that process and those ratios, we try to keep the flavoring ingredients no more than 25%. And then the rest cabbage, and that makes for a very stable ferment and quite successful ferment. Right. Okay. So so you've you've got your scale out, you put the bowl down, you teared it, and then you started adding adding your flavor ingredients up to uh, 20%, 25%. Exactly. And, and then you dice or uh, shred all that cabbage and put it in as well? Exactly. And so then you'll keep adding cabbage until you hit, hit 800 grams. And um, with the cabbage, it's really nice. The thinner you slice your cabbage, the more cell walls that you're going to open up. This will also happen when you're mixing everything up. But then you're going to create more brine. You're releasing, breaking open the cells to release the water to make your brine. So when people don't have enough brine, it's often because they coarsely chopped the cabbage and did not open up en enough of those cells to let, let out all the water to make the brine. Right. Great. That's a good tip for sure. I've definitely, the first couple of ones, I just <laughs> used a knife. And then my, my Orma actually gave me her, um, she had like a big, looks like a cheese grater slicer for cabbage right. specifically and that works fantastic it, it does and it may be some people are a little leery of using what they call the mandolin or the cabbage slicer but i can't even use the knife anymore it's so easy yeah. to yep. use that cabbage slicer but you know you start with what you have right yeah so you'll have a nice big bowl and you're you think that all that cabbage will never fit into your jar because it is quite a big heap of sliced cabbage and carrots, but believe me, it will. Because with your third step, salt, we're going to uh, sprinkle one tablespoon or 16 grams of salt over that mixture. And this is where the fun really begins. You, you take your hands, you mix all that together, and the cabbage leaves just start to glisten like a rain has sprinkled over them. Mm. And I like to like mix in my salt thoroughly, and then I let the um, salt and the cabbage work on its own. I go and clean up the kitchen, put away all the things I use to prepare my um, sliced cabbage and carrots, and uh, come back 20, 30 minutes, even up to an hour later, and you'll find that you don't have to do much work to get your brine. So we first salted it, and then we let the salt work on its own to pull the moisture out of the cabbage cells. And then we'll come in and we'll massage with strong hands is what I call it. But I keep working the mixture in the bowl, turning it around and tossing and turning it and squeezing it. And pretty soon, if you tip the bowl to the side, you'll see a nice big puddle of brine. And there's your magic. That's the brine that's going to keep your sauerkraut safe and away from airborne uh, bacteria. Mm -hmm. So that's really important to keep that... Um or get that brine so you can have all of that cabbage submerged in the jar. Exactly. And that's you'll know that you have enough brine when you just tilt the bowl to the side and you see that nice puddle. Right. Okay. And then you'll, you'll be ready for step number four, which is to pack it into the jar. So hang on, before we go there, that, so you said 16 grams of salt, salt. which is 2% of 800 grams. Exactly. And that's a, that's a nice sweet point. Some people can use a little bit more if you're fermenting in real hot weather. Right. Okay. And that will kind of slow the fermentation down a tad. Or if you're fermenting in cooler weather, you can go you know a hair less. But um, we start off with that 16 grams and then your next batch, you know, you can adjust it one way or the other to stay within kind of a, technically it's one and a half percent to two and a half percent salt. Fantastic. 
And then, so to step number four, we're going to pack the jar and I'd hold the jar in one hand and then with the other hand, just grab handfuls of that juicy mixture. And you'll see it's, um, you know, we talked about that big bowl full of cabbage and wondering if it would ever fit into the jar. But you'll notice now that it has been salted and you massaged and you left it sit for a while, that it has shrunk quite a bit. Your pile is much, much smaller. So that gets packed into the jar, and you just take a few handfuls at a time and put your fist in there. If your fist is too large, you can find some type of implement or spoon that will fit in there and just keep packing it down. You're just trying to make sure that you um, eliminate any large air pockets. You're not going to get rid of all of them, but just a nice firm uh, packing. Some people ask how firm. I say not, not hard enough to break the jar. Right. You're just trying to get it in there firmly. Mm-hmm. So we have our jar packed. And there's not really any any easy way, or not easy, but um, it's a bit of a glorious mess, isn't it? Or the way that I do it, at least. Well, I'm kind of, I don't want to say I'm a clean freak, but I find if I um, pack with just one hand and keep my other hand clean, the, the left hand you know, that I'm holding the jar with, and I hold it kind of over the bowl as I pack, it can stay fairly clean. Okay, But, All right. you know, if it's a mess, you get to nibble on those little bits as you clean up, and it's a nice way to taste what the mixture is like before it ferments because it will taste salty. You'll taste some sweetness, and that sweetness is what the bacteria are going to eat. They need that sugar that's in the cabbage mm. and the carrots to produce lactic acid. Mm-hmm. So now the uh, most important part is to make sure your packed mixture is going to stay below the brine. And as you packed it in there, you'll notice the brine rising above the surface. It will almost be to the top of the jar. And as the bacteria are working when you are fermenting the jar, uh, they're producing carbon dioxide and those bubbles rise to the surface. And as that's happening, the mixture will we call heave. It will expand and push its way out of the jar unless you have some way to hold it down below the jar, below the um, brine level. What I like to use um, without going out and buying any of the fancy weights, they're great to buy, but it's nice to start off with kind of what you have around the home. See if you like this and then you kind of know what you're looking for once you've had some experience with it. I find a smaller jar, kind of a small tall one that will fit inside my wide mouth mason jar. And I fill that with water and cap it. And so that's like a weight that people that you can use and put inside the jar and that will hold everything below the brine. Great. Okay. So there'd just be like a, a thin um, sort of like a moat around the outside of the brine. Right. Exactly. And people, there's glass weights that people put in. Um, another uh, person will use like a Ziploc bag filled with water. That's another way to weight things down. There's lots of different ideas, but the idea is to come up with some way to hold everything below the brine. My recipe and that I have people use a really small 125 milliliter jar. It's a really small jelly jar. Mm-hmm. And that actually fits into the jar and you can then screw a lid on top of that. And then by the force of the lid down on the jar, everything stays below the brine. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. I've actually just used stones before. I just boiled stones and used those, which seemed to work. I'd put it a couple of pieces of cabbage, like large cabbage leaf and then the stones to sort of hold everything exactly. down. Yeah, I, I forgot to put in your floaties trap. Yes, you want to trap everything below the brine with a large cabbage leaf. But yeah, anything that you can find that's going to work to hold it below the brine and um, then it can start fermenting. The microbes can start working for you. Awesome. So that's our um, step five was to submerge and seal the jar. You may not always be able to put a lid on. That is fine as long as it's, you know, everything's below the brine still. And you don't so, want to completely seal it, right? You don't want to have it airlocked. If you have a lid with some type of airlock, you can. But if not, I just loosely put on the lid because, like I said, during those first you know, one to five days, the bacteria are producing a lot of carbon dioxide. So if you put the lid on too tight, that gas has to escape. The jar has nowhere to go. Right. The airlock, it would go out through the airlock. Yeah, so, not then you're okay. So airlock is fine, but not a, a sealed lid that's going to hold in the CO two. Right, and if you do want to use a sealed lid, just remember each day to unscrew it slightly and let the gas escape, and then screw the lid back on. Awesome. Okay, great. Uh, 
So then it's going to ferment. And you have done all the hard work, and now the bacteria, you provided a beautiful home for them, and they get to work for you. And they're going to be in there eating the sugars and producing lactic acid and lowering the pH. And it actually happens fairly quickly. By the about day five, there's lots of lactic acid. It'll start tasting tangy and sour. The colors will have faded from a bright green to a kind of dull green. And uh, the pH will have dropped, and you'll know it's safe. You can use pH paper, but you know you've done everything right. It's the pH will have dropped down below 4.0, and that's where that tang comes from. And that means it's nice and safe, and you have no fear eating it. You really don't need to worry. If something had gone wrong, you would not even want to touch the stuff. It smells so noxious and. That just doesn't happen because of the uh, acidic environment that the pathogenic bacteria can't grow in. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to open the jar and start tasting around five, six, seven days. Um, I like people to ferment for about three to four weeks. That's when it's gone through all the stages of the proper fermentation. But it's a learning process and everybody has different tastes. And if you decide to start eating it at a week there's really no harm in that it's you'll get better flavor development to have it go a few more weeks but start it at a week and your next jar let it go two weeks and you get to really understand the nuances in the flavors that's great I, lo- I love that suggestion that you actually start to taste what's going on in there you leave it one week two weeks three weeks and taste the difference Exactly. And, you know, it could be that it's so new to you. And if you leave it get too tangy, that you're not going to eat it. Well, it's more important to uh, maybe have a few less bacteria or at a different stage to eat it. That's what the Koreans do. They have different names for their kimchi at the different stages. And they eat it all at all different stages and just enjoy the different flavors along the way. Mm-hmm. So, so that was step six. Is that right? And you got one more step? Yep. Put it away, store it, and enjoy it. So you just take out your weight, um, clean up the jar a little bit, and uh, put a lid on it and put it in the fridge. And at a moment's notice, you pull that jar out of the fridge, put a fork into it, and eat a few forkfuls of it. Or put it on your eggs, put it in a sandwich, on a salad. Just... uh, Simple, simple ways you can enjoy it. You don't have to come up with a fancy recipe. It will add flavor um, to any meal that uh, you share it with. Mm-hmm. And I actually find when I eat sauerkraut that I don't have those sugar cravings so much. So I like to eat that after dinner as sort of like an appetit. Okay. so I don't want to eat so much sugar. That's a good idea. And uh, kind of one thing I had too with the... It was, you know, later in the process of learning to ferment. And about a year ago, I was researching the use of fish sauce in traditionally made uh, kimchi. Mm. And I had, like, just said no to uh, kimchi for the longest time because I'm not a big fan of fish. And I just didn't want that kind of fish flavor in there. But um, the fish sauce adds what we call umami which is classified as our fifth taste after the you know, sweet, sour, salty, and bitter. And what umami is, it's a term for the naturally occurring glutamates in many foods. So we find this like in Parmesan cheese, soy sauce, olives, miso, all these foods that we just love and kind of light up the taste buds and fermented foods also have this in. And it's in the fermentation process that... Um, Protein molecules are broken down to amino acids, and uh, glutamate, which is a naturally occurring uh, umami compound, is amino acid that's created in the fermentation process. And so I find when I have a fermented food with my meal, the whole meal tastes just, it just elevates everything on the plate. It tastes so much better. Mm. And so that's kind of been a recent discovery of how you can just raise the flavor of any meal just by having something fermented along with it. Yes, especially if it's it's actually fermented and not just the um, – because I know my Orma buys the um, the Rotkohl, which is uh, the, vi- the vi- vinegar one, which is still nice, but it just doesn't have the same uh, effect, does it? No, because you don't have the – I would think those uh, – that glutamate, that amino acid, to be killed off in the, uh, or maybe not produced in the same way when it's not naturally fermented. Mm-hmm. 
But yeah, it's when the meal doesn't taste quite right, I know I haven't put my uh, fermented food on the plate. So I go and grab my jar of sauerkraut and add it. That's a good tip. If, if you want to improve the flavor of a, a meal, <laughs> just add a bit of sauerkraut to it. Exactly. And, and chefs around the world are discovering that and uh, more and more are making it part of their uh, meals to uh, include something fermented. Mm-hmm. When you when you talked about fish sauce as well, I, I wanted to point this out too. In uh, I'm a big fan of Korean natural farming, and that's a process where we um, um, make a lot of the, the fertilizer inputs on the farm. And oh, okay. uh, one of them is actually fish amino acids, which is basically, well, it is fermented fish where you add um, fish and sugar together. Um, and the recommended way of doing it is have everything food grade, even though you're giving it to your plants. And this is where I saw um, someone who I interviewed before, Drake Wynett, um, use the FAA, the fish amino acids that we use for um, nitrogen in fertilizing the plants, adding that to his kimchi to, uh, when he's fermenting oh, wow. it. So you're basically fermenting your own fish sauce and then adding it with all those good microbes that can survive that fermentation to your kimchi as well. Oh my goodness. It's so neat to see how this is all connected and how how it's so much easier to share this information and learn about it with the internet. You know, it's so powerful to uh, take advantage of all these neat techniques. Mm-hmm. So what's some of the uh, the common questions that you keep get, getting asked uh, about um, maybe concerns or anything about making sauerkraut? Um, which salt to use, how much salt to use, and um, is it safe to eat? Mm, okay, so there's still a fear there. Yeah, there is definitely. That's kind of the overriding uh, you know, story back there. People are just afraid to eat this. They'll have made it. It will have sat in their refrigerator for weeks, and they still are afraid to eat it. So it's a, it's a cultural change we need to... Uh, see take place that uh we don't need to fear these foods it's it's rather ironic because we'll buy anything off the shelf in the grocery store and who knows how that was processed or you know some anonymous person got involved in making that and uh we're okay eating that but something we made at home is uh so much harder for us to get past the thought of you know is it safe for me to eat this and and sort of on that what 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 philosophy or outlook on life um, do you think really helps you um, embrace fermentation? Oh, that's a good one. Um, probably, you know, going back to how I started all, all this, just the desire to have the health we deserve that somewhat's been taken away from us by the modern food processing to get back into control of our food. Um, people ask me if I sell the sauerkraut, if I make it and sell it, I said no, because that's the point is that I want you to get your hands involved in the process and to feel empowered by the foods that we make and to realize how easy it is to ferment some food and how empowering that is and how good it feels to your body because it it really is a very simple process you're taking slicing up cabbage you're mixing in some salt you're massaging it for a little bit to create brine packing that into a jar and making sure it stays below the brine and that really is it it's just as easy as making a you know a salad a coleslaw and uh we've gotten so removed from being connected with our own food that uh I want people back in the kitchen and, you know, taking care of their health, you know, one jar at a time. Mm, mm-hmm. And that's your mission, isn't it? To, to get fermentation into, oh, I can't remember, yeah. lots of people's houses, right? <laughs> yeah, lots of homes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it is. And, you know, I get a lot of people, my readers saying, oh my goodness, all my gas and bloating is gone or um, I'm sleeping better or whatever ailment they had. They said, you know, just three weeks into eating this or three days later, it's been taken care of. And it's uh, it's neat to be in charge of your own health and to tune into your own body and realize we can take care of our health if we tune into what we're putting into our bodies and how that food is prepared and where those ingredients are co- coming from. And uh, 
So yes, I think that's what's kind of behind this fermentation. It's for me just another way to have the long and healthy life I want with good health. I didn't come into all this through, you know, a lot of people in the health and wellness field had some type of health crisis that they went through to figure out, you know, how to lead a healthy life. And luckily for me, I've always been healthy all my life and it came more from, you know, wanting to stay healthy for a long time. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's fascinating that you you obviously have a, an, an audience and you're getting feedback about, the be- the benefits that people are are having yeah exactly so is there any sort of uh is there anything that we should be careful of when doing sauerkraut or is there any sort of uh, types of people that shouldn't be eating sauerkraut oh um i i know people are concerned like who are on um high blood pressure they're concerned about the salt they're consuming um people who have a thyroid disease are consumed concerned about uh, consuming too many cruciferous vegetables mm. but I, I keep going back to sauerkraut really is a condiment and it's eaten in a very I mean we can eat to the bottom of the jar in one day but I don't recommend that because that's a lot of bacteria that you're throwing into your gut all at once but it's a condiment you can eat just a forkful or two of it and still reap tremendous benefits you don't have to eat the whole jar there's trillions of bacteria on just a few you know strands of the sauerkraut so i think where people with health concerns you know i'm not a medical doctor i haven't researched deeply into all of it but i keep coming back into um you don't need to eat much of it and you shouldn't be eating to the bottom of the jar but it does taste good and you want to keep eating um and so some of that's your body kind of asking for that food but eat it in small portions and grow slowly with it. If you do have digestive issues, start with just a sip of the brine. See how that goes. Take a few days to just sip a little bit of the brine each day and make sure your body can adjust to that and then gradually work your way up to like one or two forkfuls of the sauerkraut once or twice a day. Mm, that's, a, that's a great point and something that... um. It makes sense, you know, I, I know that with kombucha as well, if people haven't had it before, it's good just to have a little sip, see how your body reacts. But um, with sauerkraut, uh, well, actually my my two-year-old daughter, she loves, she's like, can I drink it? So every time we get a new jar of sauerkraut, she, she drinks the juice out of it. So I'm sure she has great bacterial gut health. But But the idea is that the fact that we don't actually need that much, it's more of a probiotic, isn't it? Right, exactly. And but I you know, I keep thinking to the Koreans who they eat individually, I think it's one jar of sour you know, of kimchi fermented foods weekly, whereas I think we the American number is one jar monthly. So, you know, they're eating a lot of it, but they grew up with, you know, various forms of kimchi, so various forms of fermented vegetables, but they grew up with it as a culture, as having it at every meal. And so their guts are kind of used to that amount of probiotics coming into their gut, whereas we, it's something new to us, and so it all of a sudden introduced lots and lots of probiotics may be too much for your gut to deal with. So that's why you have to go slow with it. Mm-hmm. And in your um, uh, research of getting the book together, do you want to share with us any sort of uh, studies or um, anecdotal evidence of the actual benefits of sauerkraut? One one that's not under the benefits, but what I'm thinking of is during the fermentation process, there's a couple studies out there that the uh, chemicals and stuff sprayed on like commercial, one was with wheat and one was with commercial uh, vegetables. During the fermentation process, those are actually broken down. They see very little left at the end of the fermentation process. And so when people are afraid that they cannot get like organic cabbage, I kind of pull out those studies to let them know that... uh, the fermentation process is kind of taking care of us and take, getting rid of some of those uh, nasty chemicals that may have been on the vegetables. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic that the microbes are actually working with us, uh, working for us to to break down those um, uh, different uh, toxins. It's actually the same in the soil. Bioremediation of soil 
um, happens a lot uh, because of the microbes in there that can break down those toxins. Exactly. And, you know, it's all, um, you know, back when they were making fermented foods thousands of years ago, they didn't understand the connection. They just knew it was healthy for them. And uh, I think it's 2010 is when the human gut microbiome project started and they started looking at the bacteria in there and every and how it connected with the body. Like I guess 90% of your serotonin is produced in the gut. So there's this gut brain connection and, um, it will, you know, there's all sorts of studies that improves your digestive health, supports your immune system, um, lowers your cholesterol, um, helps you with foodborne illnesses. And so if your gut is healthy, if you're eating a nasty batch of potato salad at some potluck, you might not get sick, but the next person who ate the same food will just because of a different, the health of your, um, of your gut. So uh, mm. it's important that we take care of it. For sure. So, Holly, let, let me ask you this then. In your mind, how does this connect to living a probiotic life? Or, or more than that, what does a probiotic life look like for you? Good question. Um, I guess it's for me not fearing the bacteria, but welcoming them into our lives and connecting with them and realizing that you know, it's only like 2% of the bacteria out there that are bacteria that we should, quote, fear. But if we, but the rest are good bacteria. And unfortunately, with the pasteurization and Louis Pasteur and all of that part of our history, we have focused on killing off bacteria. So to me, living a probiotic life is to welcome them into our homes and welcome them, not feel we have to pull out the hand sanitizer or sterilize our jars, but realize that uh, we can live together. And without the bacteria, we wouldn't be who we are. We wouldn't be alive. We need those bacteria. Mm. So uh, by fermentation, you kind of get a, a just a small start of uh, feeling of taking care of these bacteria. And before you know it, you're kind of talking to the bacteria in your gut and thinking what you need to do to feed them and uh, take care of them. And one is through, you know, the fermented foods and eating a great diversity of foods and working on your prebiotics and your fibers. And uh, just that to me is living a, living a probiotic life. Mm-hmm. And sauerkraut is a great way to start. Um, I think you mentioned this somewhere that, uh, uh, sauerkraut is a gateway drug to fermentation. And I would even go further than that and say it's a gateway drug to living a healthy, connected life. Yeah, exactly. And I, the one thing I like about sauerkraut and why I think it's such a great ferment to start with is you literally can add it to any meal. You can eat it with breakfast over eggs. You can eat it at lunch on a salad. You can eat it at dinner to help digest maybe a heavy protein-rich meal. And so it's really... Um, it can be made in so many different ways and have so many different flavors that it's just so easy to add to to any meal. So it is a great ferment to start with. Mm-hmm. Well, so uh, people can find you at uh, makesauerkraut.com. Is that right? Yes. And I'm that on Facebook and Pinterest and Twitter and Instagram. I'm not real active on social media. It's out there, but uh the best way that I like to connect with people is through email or through the website contact form. Fantastic. And they can find your book there and uh, there's a blog there as well, isn't there? Yeah, exactly. And like I said, the right on the website is the full-fledged recipe that takes you through kind of the seven steps to making sauerkraut one step at a time, you know, setting things up and chopping your vegetables, adding your salt, mixing it up, getting it all under the brine and sealing your jar and letting it ferment and then enjoying it. And that full-fledged recipe with all the details are on the website and just about anywhere you go on the website, you'll find a little um, opt-in that will give you a sample of the book with that recipe in it too. And you can get a taste for the book that way also little freebie opt-in mm-hmm. and you have this as a, a pdf and a hard copy isn't that right right the book comes both as an ebook pdf that you can download and look at your 
on your phone or on your tablet, and then a print book, which looks the same way as the PDF, and then it's also as a Kindle book, which is formatted a little bit differently for the Kindle devices. Well, that's great. I encourage everybody to uh, check out Holly's website and uh, get the book if you're interested. Um, Sauerkraut is really simple to make, but it's also really good to have those step-by-step instructions. For me, I know I need that sometimes when I'm making something new in the kitchen. I just need to have like a simple step-by-step. Okay, this is how we do it. Yeah, exactly. And each step, I end up with a bunch of tips at the end of the step that kind of answer all the questions that I kept getting for that process. I broke that all down to a nice little tip section for people. So pretty much, I think I cover any question you may have about it. If not, I'm happy to follow up with an email. Mm. Well, um, yeah, I really love your accessibility uh, online, Holly. And and thanks for sharing with us today on the Probiotic Live, sharing a bit of your journey. And um, is there anything that you would like to uh, say to finish up? Enjoy some good bacteria and some mouth-watering sauerkraut. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for being on the Probiotic Life. Thank you. Awesome. Well, that makes me want to go eat a bowl of sauerkraut right now. Check out Holly's website, makesauerkraut.com. And thanks, Holly, for sending me one of your books, Mouth-Roaring Sauerkraut. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's got really easily laid out and lots of pictures in there. Um, And I hope you've been inspired by this episode today. I always love hearing from you to hear what you're fermenting or how you are living a probiotic life. Also, remember to check out the link for Formidable Vegetable. Download their songs and spread that funky love. If you like this content, remember to give us a rating and review. And thanks for listening. May the beneficial microbe be with you. And until next time, cheers. Thank you for listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, and on our website, theprobiotic.life.